Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, May 30th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The world has a new, most expensive drug. It's a $2.1 million one-time gene therapy. We'll talk about the implications of this approval and the debate that unfolded on Twitter about whether that price tag should be in the headlines. Several genetic testing companies are finding the consumer business tough to crack. Bloomberg reporter Kristen Brown joins us to discuss the market. An MIT professor known for algorithmic methods has been accused of academic fraud. We'll break down the remarkably bitter dispute that's quite literally dividing the MIT bioengineering department. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Medible. Medible provides the leading integrated cloud platform for data-driven and digitally-enabled clinical trials, allowing organizations to function as a connected team and bring effective therapies to patients faster. Learn more at Medible.com and get a demo today. That's www.medable.com. So as we said at the top of the podcast, the world has a new, most expensive drug. It's called Zolgensma. It's a one-time gene therapy and will be used to treat, at least initially, children under the age of two who are born with a rare and often fatal neuromuscular disease called spinal muscular atrophy. And about that most expensive superlative, Novartis, the maker of Zolgensma, set the gene therapy's price tag at just over $2.1 million. So as is typical in our business, many journalists who covered the Zolgensma approval news used the headlines of their stories to call out the medicine's cost. And I was one of those journalists. My story's headline read, at $2.1 million, Novartis's gene therapy will be the world's most expensive drug. And then Twitter blew up. Yes, it did. Twitter was so bad that day. <laughs> so the main thing that a lot of people in either the pharmaceutical industry or in some cases in, in academia pointed out was that the story of the $2.1 million was a bit more complicated. Novartis's plan is to allow payers to pay that over the course of five years, and they would refund it if patients die. Because as Adam mentioned at the top, this you know SMA for the most severe patients is, without treatment, universally fatal. And so using the $2.1 million thing was perceived by them as being mm, irresponsible or even dishonest because the cost had all these asterisks appended to it. So Damien, that's essentially what happened. It was over the Memorial Day weekend. So it was like, I felt like this Twitter debate went on over like three extended days where like we all should have had better things to do with our time. But we need to have a sort of journalism 101 lesson here. And the fact is, is that this Zolgensma is not the first medicine to be approved to treat SMA, right? We already have a medicine that treats these kids. And the other thing is that, is that gene therapy is not relatively new, right? There are other gene therapies approved. So from a journalism standpoint, the, the real new news here was the fact that Novartis set this price, $2.1 million, which, yeah, is the world's most expensive drug. It doesn't matter how you pay it off, whether it's paid in little segments over five years or whatever, it still costs $2.1 million. It's the most expensive drug. And we're in the news business, and that's news. Yeah, I think my fundamental frustration with watching people ostensibly <laughs> smart 
and measured people say that everyone who put $2.1 million in the headline was pursuing some, you know, quote unquote, clickbait or being somehow irresponsible was exactly what you just said. What they suggested was that journalists lead with the incredible effects of the drug or the fact that this will change the lives of patients with this horrible disease. And what was annoying to me was that, yeah, we did that. We did that when that was news. When the clinical trial results of this gene therapy were new, we led with the news, which was the results. When the ostensible cost effectiveness of a gene therapy like this at even millions of dollars was news, we led with that because that was the news. The news on the day of approval was none of those things. The only thing we didn't know going into that was how much Novartis would charge for it. And then we learned that the answer was $2.1 million, and thus the headlines and the leads across many journalistic outlets, stat included, CNBC, the New York Times, included the numeral 2.1 million, because again, that was the news. And Adam, as you mentioned, we are in the business of reporting the news. So outside of this headline drama, I do think it's interesting some of the ways that this price tag is is being rationalized. So gesturing back to the drug for SMA that already exists, that's Spinraza. There was an interesting line in, in your story, Adam, where you noted that Novartis had pointed out that the chronic injections of Spinraza cost, when you add them all up over five years, more than $4 million. What did you guys make of sort of how the different parsings of this price tag played out between the two competing companies? Well, I mean, I think it's a legitimate point to make. And, and certainly Novartis is making it because they want to sort of mitigate this $2.1 million price tag that they've placed on Zolgensma. But at the same time, that's a cost effectiveness argument, which, you know, again, completely valid for them to make. There are people on both sides of that argument that will debate whether, you know, whether this drug is truly cost effective and whether the benefit is justified, whether the costs justified here. But again, that really doesn't belong in the headline of the story. And all of those things, like you said, as you pointed out, like that was pointed out in my story. The fact that this is a kind of a groundbreaking medicine that's saving the lives of children. All those things were mentioned and, and I reported on those and those were in the story and, and other reporters at the New York Times and, and other outlets did the same thing. We just didn't necessarily put them in the, in the limited space to use for a headline. One thing with respect to the cost effectiveness, an argument from the other side that I'm sympathetic to, Novartis makes a good point, Rebecca, as you mentioned, that the $2.1 million is arguably a savings compared with what people would pay for Biogen's treatment Spinraza. But if you're looking at it from the outside and looking at the drug industry as something of a monolith, what you would say is that, well, the cost of Spinraza is artificial also. Biogen, a drug company, decided that this is how much it costs. Novartis, another drug company, said, well, ours is a bargain based on how much it costs. But if you zoom out far enough, it's just a bunch of really wealthy people deciding how much saving somebody's life should cost. And so I think, you know, the likes of Peter Bach, a doctor who has studied drug prices and, and others, make a good point, which is to say that, well, yes, I mean, you're providing a savings based upon an arbitrary number that your colleagues set. And those of us who are left paying it, which is to say everyone who either has employer-backed insurance or pays taxes for Medicare, we're the ones on the hook for this arbitrary number that you decided was a discount. And I think it's also important to note that the current U.S. healthcare system, the way we sort of pay for drugs, it's not really set up to handle these kinds of, you know, 
gene therapy payments over time. It's all experimental in, in some respects. I mean, we have relatively few of these gene therapies. And these payment schemes that people like Novartis and Spark Therapeutics and other companies and Bluebird that have these gene therapies in development or approved and are trying to sort of figure out ways to get insurance companies to pay for them, we really don't have a lot of evidence yet that that's, that's going to work. And so this idea that, you know, oh, we're just going to divide the $2.1 million by five and that's a lower number. Well, theoretically it is, but we don't really know whether those kind of payment schemes are actually going to work. So this wasn't the only gene therapy news of the week. Adam, tell us about the clinical trial results uh, rolled out for a hemophilia gene therapy from Biomarin. Yeah, so it was seemed like a busy week for gene therapy. So yeah, Biomarin had some new data that came out on its uh, gene therapy for hemophilia A, which is the most common type of that rare inherited bleeding disorder. And there were a lot of questions raised about it. Initially, the data look quite strong where, you know, we're seeing a significant reduction in sort of in the bleeding episodes that these patients have. But there are still questions to be answered about how durable this gene therapy is. And that sort of also gets back to Solgensma is, you know, these are ostensibly one-time treatments. And in order for a one-time treatment to be successful, you have to have a long-term benefit. Patients can't relapse, for lack of a better word. And until we sort of follow these patients for long enough, we aren't really going to know if these gene therapies are truly effective. Yeah, I think the Biomarin news felt like a preview of the Zolgensma-esque future of these hemophilia gene therapies, which, you know, it seems like, according to people who know this much better than me, they will likely demonstrate enough effectiveness to win FDA approval. But the conversation in the future is going to be, yes, but just how effective, just for how long. Yeah. And those are conversations that that are certainly going on inside of insurance companies, because again, if you're asked to pay a large amount of money up front, you want to see a durable benefit. And Biomarin has not been shy about telling people that, you know, once their hemophilia gene therapy is approved, that they are going to look for a price tag in the one, two, three million dollar range. I mean, it's going to be up there. And in some ways, it's, I don't want to say maybe more justified, but existing hemophilia medications that patients take today are very expensive. So Biomarin's argument is that in that marketplace, you know, a high price tag is justified. And if and when that happens, we will all be prepared with our deeply irresponsible clickbait headlines. Next up, we're going to talk about the market for DNA tests meant to gauge your risk of developing different medical conditions and why some companies are retreating from or otherwise struggling with marketing these tests to consumers. So the most recent data point comes by way of Helix, which is the Silicon Valley startup that had pitched the promise of an app store for DNA. The idea was basically that you swab your cheek once, process your sample, and then the company would have your genetic data on file so that you could get it run for all sorts of different apps on the Helix platform, which included ordering a scarf patterned in the design of your DNA or a test that promises to tell women how their DNA could influence the level of a beneficial fatty acid in breast milk. Then a few weeks ago, Helix said it would shift its focus, lessening the emphasis on the direct-to-consumer business in favor of selling its services to healthcare providers. Then came the news that Helix had cut jobs and will close two of its four offices. Joining us today to talk about the genetic testing market is Kristen Brown, a reporter for Bloomberg who broke the latest news about Helix's troubles. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So Kristen, what do you think went wrong with Helix's direct consumer business? And do you think it says something broader about the industry? Yeah. So first off, I think I have to disclose, you know, I have the scarf with my own (laughs) DNA print on it. I fell for that one. But yeah, I think that a few things have happened here. First of all, it's important to keep in mind that Helix isn't doing what 23andMe is doing, genotyping, right? It's doing whole exome sequencing, which costs a lot more money. So bigger costs there. And they're trying to sell a product that I think people just haven't really found utility in. You know, they're delivering these results to people and then people just don't know what to do with them. So Helix has told me that they've found that their strategy works better when they're delivering the results along with a clinician who can help people interpret them. And so as you mentioned, a strong counterpoint to that seems to be 23andMe, which has that scientific distinction that you described, but what, which also, by all outward appearances, seems to be a thriving business. Yeah, so I think that, first of all, we have to keep in mind that 23andMe definitely, as far as we can tell, for a private company, is doing well. But I don't think that we have a clear understanding from the outside of whether that's because their ancestry tests are selling really well or their health tests are selling really well. You know, like maybe people are just buying the health test because they really want the ancestry one and it's, you know, not that much more money. So I think that it's really unclear whether for 23andMe, the killer app is health or ancestry. I do think an interesting data point is that my heritage DNA, which has traditionally only done ancestry, is now entering the health market. So we're definitely seeing that it's harder to sell consumers on health information than these DNA testing companies originally thought. And we should also keep in mind, 23andMe has gotten a lot of pushback for its health tests. A lot of people think that they're not very useful and possibly harmful. And here's another recent data point. A Seattle startup called Aravale was built around the promise that testing each person's genetics, blood, and microbiome could yield some insights, which in turn could be harnessed with tailored coaching around wellness and nutrition. But the company shut down unexpectedly last month, as reported by GeekWire. So what went wrong here? The company pointed to uh, the fact that the cost of providing all of these services exceeded what their customers wanted to pay for it. So how do we think this compares to Helix's troubles? I think the thing we have to consider there, too, is, you know, they weren't just doing doing DNA testing. They're also doing microbiome stuff, which I think consumers rightfully have a lot of wariness about because the science is very new. I think there's just a lot of enthusiasm for these new technologies and testing capabilities. And the science just isn't necessarily at a point where it can be useful to consumers. And I think, you know, people... If they're going to shell out 100 bucks, 200 bucks or something, they want to be able to use it. Yeah, you know, I've been covering the genetic testing market for a couple of years now. And the critique that I've sort of heard over and over from physicians is that so much of this stuff is unnecessary. You know, there might be a few situations like with someone with family history or particularly actionable conditions where genetic testing might be helpful. But, you know, most of the time, the information that this testing yields just doesn't seem to be useful or there doesn't seem to be anything you can do with it. Do we think the market and and consumers are sort of catching on to this? Yeah, I definitely think so. Because, you know, enough people have taken these tests and been like, oh, cool, I'm not at risk for Alzheimer's or I am at risk for Alzheimer's and then just been like, okay, so now what? And then they go to their doctor 
And, you know, maybe their doctor tells them what the FDA has said, which is this is not a valid diagnostic. So why would you tell your friends and family to go out and purchase a 23andMe health test? So there are some companies that are continuing to sell tests to consumers while also targeting hospital systems with their services. Uh, There's a Silicon Valley company called Color Genomics. They come to mind because it sells physician-ordered tests online to consumers, but also has been emphasizing striking deals with hospital systems. And then there's Veritas Genetics, which has also continued to try to target both the clinic and the consumer. So guys, is that the route to success here? Kind of a direct-to-consumer DTC as a side business? You know, it's interesting because Color, like Helix, initially had a lot more focus on the consumer market. And like Helix, you know, in January, they also decided, okay, we're not going to go that route. And I I think DTC as a side business is a good way to put it because there's no harm in trying out that way, seeing how many kits you sell. But, you know, for Color, they're making deals to get tens of thousands of customers versus spending on ads and other things to acquire, you know, maybe one customer. So I think that when you think about the cost of these companies and the cost of acquiring a single customer, it just makes more sense. And that's what Color CEO has told me that, you know, the economics just bear out that it makes more sense to make deals with hospitals and health systems than to, you know, buy a bunch of ads and target people on Instagram. Kristen, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Now we turn our attention to accusations of academic fraud at one of this country's most prestigious institutions. Damien, what on earth is happening at MIT? Well, it has been quite the week at MIT's bioengineering department. The short version is this. One professor of bioengineering at MIT is part of a group of scientists who are accusing another professor of bioengineering at MIT of basically committing scientific fraud or committing scientific close to fraud. So Damien, lay out the two sides for us. Why is this important? So on one side, you've got a guy named Ram Sasasekaran. He has made his name among a few things, but on the idea that you can use algorithms and mathematical models to discover antibody treatments that are better, more potent, safer, just all the things you want than those that are found in the traditional way, which is cloning antibodies from humans or animal cells. And on the other side, you've got the company Adimab, who make antibodies for pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, most key, perhaps, to the narrative that that I'm describing right now is a guy named Dean Wittrup, who is a co-founder of Adimab and also is Sasa Sekaran's colleague at MIT. Anyway, they published a paper last week saying basically that in two instances where Sasa Sekaran's lab claims that their fancy algorithm generated a cool new antibody that was better than anything anybody else could have come up with, that they basically just copy-pasted things that already existed in the literature. And the implication of the paper is that this algorithm that, that is so vaunted and that they describe as being so important was kind of just vaporware. 
So, Damien, we hear about accusations of academic fraud all the time, but what makes this one different? So what struck me and what struck a lot of other people, you know, me and, and, and our colleague Megan Thielking did some follow-up reporting, was that the Adamab people, they didn't go through what are the kind of standard accepted scientific channels, which is where if you have an issue with some published scientific literature, you go to the editors of the journal in question that published it, you go to the authors, and you kind of do this sort of behind the scenes process of, of I guess, you know, after the fact, fact checking. But the people at Adamab, they didn't do that. <laughs> they just published straight away their claim, which is that this looks like bunk, and, you know, talking to the authors, what they said was, we just wanted to put it in the public domain and let the people decide for themselves. That is not generally how it goes. And so, you know, when we spoke to people, whether they were defending Sussexacron or siding with the Adamat paper, everyone agreed, like, this is not the standard operating procedure. Like, this is more akin to Pusha T calling out Drake's secret child than it is to the means by which things are discussed in PNAS or Cell. So what's coming next in this whole saga? So MIT had no comment on this kind of internal situation, but people we talked to all believe that there will be an internal investigation and, and that the university will look into Sasekaran's lab notes and interview people and, and try to get to the bottom of exactly what's going on. I should have mentioned from the outset, Sasekaran obviously denies the allegations. He called them slanderous which is a misuse of the term. I think he meant libelous. But as we mentioned before, not everyone in science is well-versed in the nomenclature of journalism. And the Adamab people stand by everything they wrote. Uh, what they told me was that we dare anyone to prove us wrong. And if they do, then we will happily retract our paper. We are just trying to advance the conversation around scientific integrity. So this is just like a really zesty situation happening at MIT. And I, for one, am intrigued by whatever the next development is. It's kind of an interesting accusation here. As you detailed in your story, Damien, the question is sort of the sequence of amino acids. You know, is it identical or too similar to sequences that have been published in, in other papers? You know, is this something that could be kind of straightforwardly adjudicated? That's a really good question. And I think what's important to note is that it's not an allegation of intellectual property theft. The people of Adamab do not claim that the antibodies purportedly discovered through Sasasekaran's algorithm aren't patentable. What they claim is that despite being patentable, they are too similar to previously existing antibodies for it to be true that the algorithm actually did anything. So the claim is not necessarily legalistic or the kind of thing that would be adjudicated in court. It's simply just basically one group saying to another group, we think you're lying, basically, or we think that the evidence points to the fact that if you're not lying, there must be an incredible explanation for how you reach this conclusion. And both of those groups exist within the MIT bioengineering department. So I imagine that the next faculty mixer is going to be a little bit awkward. I would imagine the same. And I hope to get an invite, although as of yet, my inbox is empty. does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Before we go, a reminder that the big ASCO annual meeting takes place this weekend, and my colleague Matt Harper and I will be in Chicago covering all the latest cancer news. And you can sign up for our newsletter, ASCO in 30 Seconds, by visiting STAT's website. We'll also have a special ASCO podcast that you'll be able to listen to on Tuesday, June 4th. 
In the meantime, thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and guests we should consider for the future. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.